0: If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. As usually, we'll be, always, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, but we'll be reading um, just a portion of the chapter, verses 1 through 17. As you're opening there to 2 Samuel Chapter seven, verses one through seventeen. By the way, uh, if if you don't have your own copy of the Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you and open up to page three fifty-seven. Or oh, the words will be on the screen. Second Samuel, chapter seven, uh, verses one through seventeen. As you're opening there, uh, let me remind you: next Sunday is our fall fellowship at the farm. Bring an appetizer. Bring a dessert and or a dessert, bring a lawn chair, and bring a good attitude, ready to have a good time. And so we'll go uh, out to the farm in Steele, to Gulf Creek Farm. And if you don't know how to get there, if you've not been there before or have forgotten... Since last year, we'll have directions available for you next Sunday on how to get there. So don't panic about that. Uh, if, if you're not going to be here next Sunday morning, but you still want to come, just get in touch with us in the church office this week and we'll make sure you have directions to the farm. Make sure you know how to get there. Um, and we're going to go out there and have a good time. Games and fun for the kids, uh, food and fellowship for the adults and a good time for everybody. So make plans to be out there next Sunday, next Sunday. All right. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and if you would, please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, who I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, "...who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. I will be to him a father." Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we ask you, if you would, please move among us today in order that we might hear, receive, and be changed by your word. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite things to do, and I think it comes from um, one of my favorite things to do when I was growing up, I love to go for a ride. I love to get in the car and go for a ride. In fact, I love riding in the car so much if I take Whitney to the store and drop her off at the door, I don't park. I circle the parking lot until it's time for her to come out. I just love going for a ride. It's one of my favorite things uh, to do. When I was a kid, my dad would come in. Usually it was on a Sunday afternoon and he would say, come on you guys, y'all hop in the car. We're going to go for a ride. We would go Different places. just depends on what sort of mood we were in. This time of year, though, my favorite thing to do is get in the car and go look at the leaves. You guys like to go look at the leaves? We're in a great part of the world to go look at the leaves. It is kind of a funny thing to do. Hey, let's go watch the trees temporarily die. But anyway, we we go and we look at the leaves and see the beauty of God's creation. We live in a perfect part of the world to do that. I love to get in the car. In fact, I've been working, looking at my calendar um, where our kids are getting older and we're so busy sometimes we don't have good days just to go for a ride but I'm, I'm working on it uh, finding a good day to go do this hop in the car and go right up toward Chattanooga but not on the interstate we like to go and ride over the hills and in the valleys up to Mentone and, and through and see different waterfalls and um, um, or artists formerly known as waterfalls right now till we get some rain but you know we go right up through there and see all these beautiful sights one of my favorite And least favorite stops along the way. I love it and hate it all at the same time. Is a place called the Lookout Mountain Flight Park. You guys ever been here? It's a business that specializes in hang gliding. And they're on the brow of Lookout Mountain. They have, I'm a novice, I don't hang glide. I don't ever intend to hang glide. Uh, It's not something I have plans to do. But they have what they call a concrete radial launch ramp. They claim that it's world famous, and I would it's famous in, in my nightmares. <laughs> it is pretty much the coolest and most horrifying thing I've ever seen. It's basically a concrete ramp that goes straight off the edge of the mountain. In fact, I've been there before when I saw hang gliders going off the ramp, and it's just something to see somebody going off a ramp that goes off the edge of a mountain, and then they just float off into the distance, and my stomach hits the floor. It's miserable and... Awesome to watch all at the same time. I love to stop there despite the sheer terror of it because of the incredible views. There are no trees there. You can see for miles and miles and miles. The vista is gorgeous. In fact, I have a picture of me and our family there that they're going to put on the screen for you to see. Um, There's a, a, a picture of us there. Yeah, you can see. You can see out into the distance. Now, this was two or three years ago, and you can imagine how difficult it was to make sure Jim survived that day. He's faster than I am, you know, it doesn't take much. He's faster I nervous the whole time. Uh, I've gotten out close enough to know there is a net at the bottom, but who is going to go get him down there, you know, if he did happen uh, to go down there? Uh, this morning, we arrive at a passage of the Bible that when we stand on it, we can see for miles and miles and miles we can see, looking backward, miles and miles and miles, years and years and years back, all the way back to Adam, who was meant to rule over God's good creation and to be fruitful and to multiply in order that the world might be blessed. When we look back from this passage, we can see Abraham with whom God made a covenant that through him and his offspring, this is the national identity of Israel, is rooted directly in the Abrahamic covenant and from here at the Davidic covenant this promise that God makes to David, we can see Abraham and we can see echoes of these truths. But not only can we look backward, we can also look forward. We can see out in the future. And we can see a son of David, a son of man, being given dominion and glory and a kingdom which shall not pass away, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Here... In this passage that introduces us to God's covenant with David, we can see for miles and miles and miles, but most importantly, we can see God. Most importantly here, we catch a vision of our covenant God. For all the beauty that you see, for all the wonders that you see here, don't miss the most important sight, the God who makes and keeps promises. The God who, in loving kindness, is dedicated to His people through covenant. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage today, I want to show you three truths about your covenant God. About the God who is dedicated to us in loving kindness. I want to show you three truths to strengthen and bolster your faith in the God who is committed in loving kindness to His people. Three truths about God today. Isn't that what you came to church to do? To learn about God. Three truths about God today. Here's the first. Our covenant God is rich in grace. Our covenant God is rich in grace in grace god is rich in so many things is he not but i would argue that there's nothing more practical nothing more pertinent nothing more important to each of us sitting here today than the fact that god is rich in grace david comes to an epiphany here in verses 1 and 2 of second samuel chapter 7 he realizes that he lives in a house of cedar but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, David is enough of a theist and correct theologically enough to know to not say something silly like God lives in a tent. We know God doesn't live in a tent any more than God eventually lives in the temple. It's one reason why we try to be very careful. We understand what we mean when we come to church and we say, it's so good to be in the house of God. This is a house that belongs to God, but God doesn't live here. In fact, nothing lives here once you leave. Well, some things live here, I'm sure. But we pay people to try to make sure things don't live here. You see what I mean. God doesn't live here. He doesn't dwell here. He doesn't dwell in anything made by hands. But here David says carefully that the ark of God dwells in a tent. Well, on the surface, nothing makes more sense than this reality, right? The king ought not to live in a house of cedar and have more seeming honor given to him than the ark of God. It's more important. So in order to show how important God is to us, uh, David goes to Nathan the prophet. And he says, this is what I plan to do. And what does Nathan say? Well, that's a great idea to me. Makes a lot of sense. Wasn't going to say anything because, you know, it's not really my place. But uh, let's go for it. God's with you. But that night, it turns out the Lord had other plans. Uh, God comes to Nathan in a vision in the night, in a dream, and he makes clear to him several things. First of all, he makes it clear in the first verses here that he has not requested that a temple be built. It's interesting that God is making it so abundantly clear he's not a prima donna. Now, why is God making this so clear? Why why is it so important to us to know that God didn't request in this way? He's not complaining. He's not asking for a house to be built. Because it would have been normal for a king, any king in David's day and age as a tribute to the God who gave him the success he gave him to keep him happy, to give him a house, to create a temple to worship that God there. And again, once again, what God is doing is drawing a line between him, the God of the universe, and all these local gods. See, I don't need to be treated like these. I am not implacable. I I am not requiring or requesting to be treated in these ways. I never asked for this. This isn't what I want. He begins with that, but then he bookends this conversation with David in verse 11 with an interesting phrase. I will build you a house. I will build you a house. Does that mean David's like one of these uh, prosperity preachers? I saw one the other day talking about how expensive the house he lives in is. and Well, you've built a house, but I'm going to build you a better house. No, this is a play on words, an intentional play on words in Hebrew because the word house doesn't just mean a place in which you dwell. A house also means a dynasty. It's a reference to descendants, the house of David. You've probably heard house used in that term in terms of dynasties throughout history. That's what God's telling David. He's intentionally using a play on words. You think you're going to build me a house, but in reality, I'm going to build you a house. The astute reader recognizes that God must not make a, a palace because David already has one. This is not the time, in other words, for David to do something for God. It's time for God to do something for his people through David. It's not about what David can do to make God happy. It's what God can do according to his own pleasure for the benefit of his people and ultimately for the benefit of the world. But I want you to notice something that David does. In the process of, I mean God does, in the process of initiating this covenant with David, the Lord reminds him through Nathan of who he is. He reminds him that he's a God of grace. As God is initiating this covenant, he wants to make it so clear to David, I am a God of grace. Of grace. Let me just show you a few examples. In verse eight, he says, "I took you from the pasture; I took you from shepherding sheep, and now you are a shepherd over my people, Israel." And chapter, I mean, in verse nine, first part, he says. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies. God's reminding him by his grace, he gave David victory in battle. He tells him, I will make for you a great name. It's not for David to make for himself a great name like the world has, but God is able to do that. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, I will appoint a place for Israel and plant them. And he goes on to say, I will give them peace and give them rest from their enemies. Do you see what it's about here? It's about what God, 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 God will do for David and his people. Now, what did they do to deserve this? God God is emphasizing that it's not about David's ability to provide for him, but his ability, God's ability to provide for David and the people of God. And what did they do to deserve it? Nothing. What, What did Abraham do to deserve God's favor? Nothing. In fact, the Bible tells us God called Abraham away from serving other gods. Abraham was a pagan before God chose to place his special love upon him. What did David do to earn God's favor? Nothing. His great hymn says, "Tis mercy all, immense and free." Do you see the richness of God's grace in choosing to love and bless a people? I want you, as you consider God's covenants, God's commitment to His people to be reminded that it's all of grace. Marvel at the riches of God's grace. My sinful shame, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Marvel at the riches of God's grace. Our covenant God is rich in grace. And second of all, our covenant God inspires grateful worship. Uh, We're going to come back in, in just a moment. Uh, to the intervening verses, but skip down with me right now to, to verse 18, down to the end of the chapter. And you can see the way that David responds to this covenant. And, and in, a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, this is grateful worship. Notice in verses 18 through 20, David's humility. Who am I, O Lord God? God inspires humble worship. Notice is in, chapters tw- in verses 21 and 22, notice that God inspires sure worship, confident worship on David's behalf. Because of your promise, he says in verse 21. In verse 22, he says, there is none like you because of that. Because of who God is, we can be confident in our worship. We don't come to church on Sundays and wonder whether or not we ought to be worshiping someone else. We can be sure and confident in our worship of God. God inspires also truth-filled worship. Worship that's focused on the truth. In verses 23 and 24 of this prayer to God, David recounts his great deeds on behalf of his people, focusing particularly on the Exodus. Oh, and my friends, God in this grateful worship, He inspires faith-filled worship. David calls on God in verse 25 to confirm The word which he has spoken. He says in verse 26, Your name will be magnified forever. Notice how the chapter closes, this beautiful crescendo. Now therefore, verse 29, May it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. You can't talk about forever without faith. Because we can't see forever, can we? By, by our very nature, we are finite, aren't we? And so we really can't know forever. We'll never get to the end of forever. There'll never be a moment we don't have to continue to trust God. It will be faith like we have it now, but forever we have to do that. For David to say this, he is giving to God faith-filled worship. What gratitude we should have then for God's ways and works and how it should fill the hearts of those that worship God. God. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. And I want to cover the middle section of this chapter because I think it helps make all of this make sense. It gives us the truest expression of God's grace. We believe God's a gracious God. It gives us the most important reason for worship. And it's this. Our covenant God redeems through His Son. Our covenant God, third of all, redeems through his son. I want you to notice again one more time what God says to David in verse 11. I will build, I will make you a house. The Lord will make for you a house. Now consider this for just a moment. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now consider for a moment what God has already given David. He's given him kingship over both Judah and Israel, has he not? He has given him the capital city of Jerusalem. God has allowed the ark to be brought there to Jerusalem, and so now God has given David, his appointed king, a dominion, a place to reign. And now... God is giving him a dynasty. He says, I will build you a house. But what is God doing here? Why delay this? Uh, Later, passages of the Bible give us a little more information. Practically, as Solomon is taking the throne, the Bible practically says David wasn't allowed to build a house because of the great war that he had to wage. But here, the only reason given is it is time for God to build David a house. You see, what God is teaching David here and what God is teaching us that this isn't about palaces. It isn't about temples. It isn't even really primarily about this singular place, but it's about God bringing about a program. That he started when he spoke the world into existence, when he cultivated a perfect garden, when he put his representative king there in that garden and told him to be fruitful and multiply and to cultivate the garden in such a way that eventually we recognize the glory of God would have covered the earth like the waters cover the sea. And here, God, in this mountain on Zion, is placing a new king through whom, like Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. This isn't about palaces. It isn't about temples. This is about a dynasty for the dominion that God has given David. This is God renewing the world after the fall through sin. But think about it for a moment. Verses 12 and 13, chapter 7. The Bible makes it so clear. I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Here's the problem. David's descendants eventually lose dominion. First they lose Israel and eventually they lose Judah around 500-ish B.C. There is no longer an heir of David on the throne. And even when Israel is able to go back to Israel, even when the Maccabees take over, those aren't people from the tribe of Judah. Those aren't descendants of David. I ask you this question, does God actually keep his promises? God says that one from David's body will be on the throne forever. Brothers and sisters, as we stand here on this hill looking out over this vista, can you look just a little further? Can you see just a little further down the line? You might have to squint a little, but I think you can see it. Do you see how we are pointing, being pointed, of course, to David's son Solomon? But do you see how we're being pointed even further? Do you see how God is delaying David in building the temple because he has a far greater temple to build? Do you see how the temple where heaven meets earth is truly built, as Jesus said explicitly, in him, tear down this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. Where did heaven truly meet earth? Was it not in the body, broken for us? of the Lord Jesus Christ in the blood shed for us of the Lord Jesus Christ do you see how the temple is being delayed so that a son from David's body would be the temple itself do you see how God is pointing forward to one who would be faithful but nonetheless would be disciplined with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men Do you see how God is at work to build a kingdom that lasts forever through His very own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? And on the day when the Holy Spirit came rushing on to the very people of God, one of God's appointed apostles, Peter, says to his countrymen, I can testify to you that David was dead and was buried and that his tomb is with us until this day, but God has appointed Jesus, whom He raised from the dead, as both Lord and Christ, Can you see it? Do you see what God is doing? Do you see the way that God is building a dominion and a dynasty that's far greater than what we could imagine there in Jerusalem, far greater than what we could imagine in Israel? Do you see how God is at work through the true and better Adam, through the true and better Abraham, through the true and better David, our Lord Jesus Christ, to build for himself a people? And can you look forward in faith, and can you see the way that when Jesus returns, the glory of God will cover The earth, like the waters cover the seas, and brothers and sisters, his kingdom shall have no end. God was at work in the life of David to take dominion over the world through a new Adam, a better Adam, through a new David, a better David, and we know him now. His name is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want you to trust him. Today. You may have never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time. I want to encourage you this morning to put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time if you never have before. You